Keep your Bible open there at John 6. If you look at your sermon outline, you'll see that we've performed a miracle of time travel. And uh, Oh no, it's been fixed. Kevin, you fixed it. Well done. This morning it said I was preaching on the 6th of June and I thought I'd lost a whole month. Uh, now I'm going to pray before we look at this great passage together. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful picture you've given us of Jesus in John's Gospel. We thank you for the way... Uh, we have this privilege each week of coming together around your word, being taught by it, being encouraged by it, sometimes being challenged by it. And so, Father, we pray that that's what your word will do for us tonight, where we need to be encouraged, it will encourage us, and where we need to be challenged, it will challenge us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is the uh, final passage we're looking at in John's Gospel for a couple of weeks, uh, because we're having a couple of weeks break to do the uh, Tough Questions series. Uh, I don't know what I'm going to be preaching on next week yet. Questions are still coming in, uh, but that's what we're going to do. But then back to John in a couple of weeks' time. But it's actually a really good spot to take a break because this passage is sort of the end part of one part of Jesus' ministry. So if you've got John there in front of you, uh, John sort of breaks in half at the beginning of chapter 13. Chapters 1 to 12 are all Jesus' ministry all over the place. Then chapter 13 to the end is Jesus going to his death and uh, resurrection. But here at the end of chapter 6, it's the end of Jesus' hometown ministry. So his ministry in Galilee. Uh, and so it's a good spot to take a break. And at this point, you would have to say it's actually sort of a success story. There are large crowds following Jesus by this point. Uh, he's got hundreds of disciples, uh, possibly even more than that. And they've seen some incredible miracles so over the last couple of weeks, so two weeks ago, we saw the big miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, where 5,000 men, we don't know how many women and children as well, were fed with a couple of loaves and a couple of fish, and it was incredible, and they loved it, and they followed Jesus all over the countryside, sort of to track him down around the Sea of Galilee, and then they sort of caught up with him in Capernaum, uh, and we saw his teaching last week, where he taught about the meaning of that sign, so remember Troy's sermon last week where he said, I haven't just come to feed your bellies. I haven't just come to give you physical life. I am the bread of life. Uh, I have come to feed you for eternity. I can give you eternal life. And so he makes this wonderful offer. Look at verse 58, the end of last week's passage. And he says, the one who eats this bread will live forever. And we saw it last week. It's just this wonderful, simple metaphor for believing in Jesus and receiving eternal life. It's the great promise of the gospel, isn't it? And so at this point, we're sort of expecting a, a, a wonderful climax to Jesus' Galilean ministry. I mean, who would not accept that wonderful offer? I hope last week you went home sort of thinking, praise God, because I have eternal life. I, have, I don't have to earn it. It's not by my works. It is just by receiving Jesus, by accepting him, by believing in him, I have eternal life. It's the most wonderful offer ever made. And the only right response is to believe it and to worship Jesus. But sadly, that wasn't the response of these hundreds of disciples. Because in today's passage, we see what I think is one of the saddest verses in the Bible, certainly in John's Gospel. It's verse 66. Look there with me. It says, from that moment, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. Isn't that just the most sad statement? Uh, in the original language, there's a real sense of finality to it. It's not just, oh, we'll go home and we might come back again. It's, we are leaving. It's over. 
we're not following Jesus anymore. Here is the gift of eternal life, free for the taking. And they turned and walked away. And the thing that is really striking, just look at that verse again, is that these people were disciples. John purposely chooses that word. This wasn't interested onlookers who had come to an evangelistic event, heard one talk and said, ah, I don't know if I'm interested in Jesus. These were people who in some sense up to this point had committed to Jesus. These were people who had actually given things up to follow him, who in some sense had tasted of what Jesus had to offer. But now they walked away. And I think you sense something of just how much this hurt Jesus at verse 67, look there. Therefore Jesus said to the 12, you don't want to go away too, do you? Are you going to walk away as well? Am I going to be on my own? Can I tell you, if you have been a Christian for any length of time at all, you know that pain. For me, for, the, for all the joy my ministry brings me, and I love being your minister, I, I love it. I love seeing people become Christians, I love seeing people grow as Christians, I love helping people through difficult times in their life, I love all of that. But there is always this sadness for the people who have walked away. Not walk away from me or our church, that's, that's just my pride, that's irrelevant, you know. But who have walked away from following Jesus. That cuts me to the heart. And it should cut every Christian to the heart. And if you have a family member or if, you, if there was a brother or sister in Christ that you used to come to church with here, it cuts you to the heart, doesn't it? That they are no longer following Jesus. It did the Apostle Paul, he knew that pain, there are lots of references. If you ever read like the final chapter of each of Paul's letters, he often talks about the people who've encouraged him, but sometimes he talks about these people who've walked away, who've deserted him and the gospel and walked away from Christ. And for me, when I look back and I think of people who sat with us and who heard the scriptures read and taught like we heard them, for people who in some sense expressed faith in Christ, of course there's the question of whether they truly knew Jesus or not, that's the theological question, but as far as we see, there are so many people who in every way seemed to be a disciple of Jesus sometimes who served, sometimes who, who, who really, the love of Jesus seemed to shine out of them, who tasted the truth of the gospel, who could articulate very clearly that Jesus died for sins, one man for all, and rose again, and who sat sort of there or there in our church. But they have now walked away from Jesus and no longer follow him. That breaks your heart, doesn't it? Just like it broke Jesus' heart and it broke the Apostle Paul's heart. But I think as we see why these first disciples walked away in John chapter 6, which is what we're looking at tonight, it will actually help us understand our experience. And my hope is that it will convict you as to why you won't walk away from Jesus. That's my prayer for us tonight. So jump back up to verse, verse 60, uh, right back to the start of the passage, that's where we see the problem. So look there, it says, therefore... When many of his disciples heard this, they said, this teaching is hard. Who can accept it? Sometimes it is hard to understand the teaching of Jesus, isn't it? Who has never had the experience of reading a passage of the Gospels and saying, I have no idea what Jesus is talking about? That's good. We've got a group of honest people here because no one put up their hand. 
See, sometimes we need to grapple to work out what Jesus is saying, but that's not what he's talking about here. That's not what they're complaining about here. Actually, Jesus' teaching here that we saw last week is very, very simple. I mean, no disrespect to Troy, who preached a great sermon last week, but it wasn't actually a difficult concept when he talked about being the bread of life. It was a really simple metaphor. So simple, I could put it on one slide. Here it is. Jesus says, just like you eat physical bread and you receive that with your mouth by eating it and it gives you temporary life, well, in the same way, Jesus is the bread of life and you eat him, you receive him by believing and that gives you eternal life. That is not difficult to understand, is it? That is pretty simple. It wasn't that they couldn't understand it. That's not what they were complaining about. Their problem wasn't intellectual. The word translated hard here means offensive hard, harsh to the ear, hard to stomach, to use sort of Jesus' picture. That was their problem. They understood Jesus' teaching very well. They just didn't like it. So what was it that was so offensive to their ears? Well, you see, to see that, you have to see what they loved about Jesus. First of all, why were they following him? And it tells us they loved what Jesus did. They loved getting the food for free. You see that back in verse 26. And they loved the idea that Jesus might be a political leader who could fix all their problems. And you see that in verse 15, where they wanted to make him king. And they loved the idea that Jesus could do miracles. You see that when they ask him for a sign in verses 30 and 31. Now, they loved what Jesus did. It was what he said that offended them. It was the fact that he claimed that he was greater than Moses, who is the greatest person who had ever lived. It's the fact that he said, I am the one who has been sent from God. I have come from God. It was the fact that he said, I alone can give you eternal life. And of course, it was the fact that he talked about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, which, which just sort of offended all their sensibilities. It was all those things that offended them, that they found hard and impossible to accept. And here's the thing. No one ever gets offended by what Jesus did. No one. I mean, healing people. Who's gonna, everyone loves the Jesus who heals people. Loving people. Everyone loves the Jesus who loves people. Performing miracles. Everyone loves the Jesus who just does cool stuff. It is his words that offend people. It's his words that grate on people. And it's actually the same with his church. Everyone loves the church when we get on with caring for the poor and don't say anything. Everyone loves Anglicare. Everyone hates the Anglican Diocese of Sydney. Have you ever seen that? Why is that? Even though they're actually the same thing. You see, everyone loves the church when it cares for the poor, when it visits the sick, when it, when it supports whatever is the latest popular social cause that everyone agrees with, when it has great music so that you can come and feel spiritual. But we just wish they didn't have a sermon. You see, the church that preaches the gospel, the church that says, you are in sin and you need to repent and believe to be forgiven, the church that faithfully teaches the words of Jesus, our world doesn't like that. That's often the reason why people walk away today. Often, People have been attracted by the person of Jesus, sometimes by what they see of the person of Jesus in the church, in the way Christians treat one another. But at some point, every person needs to hear 
and believe the stark words of Jesus. Words that are about our sin. Words that are about our need for forgiveness. Words are about, that are about the fact that only his death can pay the price for our sin. Words that say that Jesus and Jesus alone is the way to know God. And if you have come to believe those words, as I pray you have, then you think they are the most wonderful words ever. You say, that's the gospel, that's the the good news, as the Apostle Paul calls it, that is the aroma of life. But if you don't, well, as 1 Corinthians says, they are the stench of death. They are offensive. And so that person says, who can accept this? But back to our passage. Because Jesus knows they're grumbling and complaining. So he asked them, look at verse 61. He says, does this offend you? He knows it does. He's not asking, does this offend you? I'm surprised. He knows they're offended. He just wants them to admit it. But interestingly, and I love this, he doesn't try to lower the offence. He doesn't try to make it reasonable for them. He doesn't go, oh, you're offended. Well, no, oh, help, let me help you understand why actually my claims are eminently sensible and reasonable. A lot of church leaders at the moment in our world could learn from Jesus here. Because at the moment, too many Christian leaders, when the world says, that's offensive, say, oh, let me backpedal. And, and let me tell you what Je- Jesus didn't really mean that. I don't know. Jesus just says, I'll tell it to you straight. And that's why he asked them this strange question about what they'd think if they saw him ascending to where he was before. He's saying to them, well, if you're offended now, are you still going to be offended when it's proven to be true? Are you still going to be offended after I've been crucified, risen from the dead, and I ascend to sit at my Father's right hand? Then, when my words are proven to be true, will you believe me then? Or will you still be offended? But then Jesus changes tack. See, all of that has been looking at it from the human side. But now Jesus turns to the other side of the equation, the role of the Spirit. Look at verse 63. He says there in verse 63 that the flesh doesn't help at all. What's that about? His point is actually really simple. The flesh is this world. He says, if your mind, if you think with a mind just shaped by this world, if you just think from this world's perspective, that's the flesh, then you will never accept my words. They will always be offensive. As the Apostle Paul says, the cross, the death of Jesus, the message of the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. Instead, if you want to really grasp and understand and believe what Jesus is saying, that requires the work of God by His Spirit in a person. Look again at verse 63. He says, The Spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh doesn't help at all. Or to put it another way, down at verse 65, He said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. This is that tension that is at the heart of the Christian faith and probably makes up about 50% of the questions I've received so far for the Tough Question series. It's that tension between the fact that we are commanded to believe and we are held accountable for not believing, but at the same time, genuine faith is never just our decision. Genuine faith always comes from God's work in us. God is in control and it takes a work of God by His Spirit to open our eyes. Now, of course, that makes sense if you understand the reality of our sin. See, when you understand, like Romans tells us, there is no one righteous, not even one, there is no one who seeks after God, you say, well, of course, 
needs a work of God to open our eyes. We wouldn't seek after God left to our own devices. When you understand, like in Ephesians, that we are dead in our sins, you say, well, of course, it takes a work of God to give us life because a dead person can't do anything to fix their problem. No, we need God to give us life. But how does the Spirit of God give us life? Through the words of Jesus. Look again at verse 63. It says, The Spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh doesn't help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. See, the Spirit of God works through the word of the gospel to give us life. That's what the Spirit does. The Spirit convicts us of who Jesus is and convicts us of the truth of his words. The Spirit convicts us that He is speaking truth when He says we are dead in our sin and He convicts us to trust in Jesus. Sometimes people have funny ideas about the Holy Spirit. They associate His work only with supernatural experiences. But how do you really know the Spirit is at work? How do you know? People often talk about having a Spirit-filled church. How do you know that there is a Spirit-filled church? Well, it's when the life-giving Word of God is being received and trusted. That's when the Spirit is at work, when the life-giving Word of God is changing people. Now, the way that our decision to believe and all the work of God's Spirit, the way they go together and how can we be responsible for our decision and yet God is in control, that raises all sorts of questions for people, questions about human responsibility and God's control and that might be a question for our Tough Question series, I'm not promising anything. Uh, But here... Jesus wants us to know about the work of the Spirit for a very specific reason. It's to comfort us when we see other disciples walk away. That's why I want you to know about it. He wants to comfort the disciples who do stay. Because when people walk away from Jesus, besides making you feel pain, how else does it make you feel? Sometimes it can make us doubt, can't it? Are they right? Am I wasting my time? Am I the only one stupid enough to not see that this guy's a fraud? But Jesus wants us to see that no, there is a spiritual reality behind people's decisions. Faith in Jesus is an intellectual decision. Often our world thinks faith is is not intellectual. Faith involves turning off your brain. No, no, no. Faith in Jesus is an intellectual decision. It's based on weighing up evidence and trusting in Christ, but it's not just an intellectual decision. See, the people who've walked away from Jesus will have all sorts of reasons for why they've walked away, but in the end, it's because the Spirit of God has not opened their eyes. God is in control even when people turn their back on Jesus. But if that's Jesus' word of comfort, you know, trust in the sovereignty of God, in a strange sort of way, now Peter, the disciple, Peter gives us an equally powerful word of comfort and conviction. We'll turn to the last part of the passage. Go back to verse 66, where I started. Here are all these disciples peeling away and leaving. And so Jesus turns to the 12 who are left his closest disciples, and he asked them that question, verse 67. You don't want to go away too, do you? And it's a turning point moment. It's a moment where, is Jesus actually going to be on his own? Is anyone going to follow Jesus? 
But Peter's answer is one of the great verses of the Bible. Look at verse 68. Simon Peter answered, Lord, who will we go to? You have the words of eternal life. When I, was, when I had just become a Christian, there was a song we sang. It was sort of like, Jesus, thank you is now, the one you're singing in every church around Sydney. And it was, where else have we to go when you alone have the words of eternal life? That's how I remember that verse. And Peter is speaking for every Christian at that point, isn't he? When you grasp the reality of your own situation, when you grasp the reality of your need for forgiveness, the reality of death and judgment, and when we grasp the reality of who Jesus is and the wonderful offer he makes us of forgiveness and eternal life, how could we ever give that up? Where else could we go? Other religions, don't waste your time. They don't compare to Jesus. Chasing fulfilment in the things of this world, like money or career or experiences, they just leave us hollow. And the moment we spend them, the more we think, well, I need more. They never fulfill us. And even the things that don't let us down now, the things that don't perish, rust and fade, well, they don't last for eternity. See, even the best things in this world, friendships, and relationships they break and they hurt and they don't last for eternity there's no marriage in heaven if you think oh but I'll just I'll find fulfillment when I get married when I find that marriage no it doesn't work it doesn't give you fulfillment and they're temporary and the point is where else would we go Jesus alone has the words. Do you notice there? It's the words. Jesus alone has the words of eternal life. And what is it that we have come to believe? What are those words? Look at verse 69. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. In the Old Testament, it's God Himself who's called the Holy One. People aren't called the Holy One, only God is called the Holy One. And I think Peter hasn't fully understood it all, but he's sort of saying, We have come to believe that, that, that you are God's Saviour. In some sense, you are God here, come to save us. And that is saving faith. And that is the faith that perseveres, truly knowing and believing the words of Jesus, believing that he is the one sent by God to be our saviour. And I hope, my prayer is, that that is your faith. Because why on earth would we ever go anywhere else when we know the Holy One of God. But there's one last little bit to this story as I finish. It's sort of like the way movies, I'm really annoying when I'm at the movies, I have to sit right to the end of the credits, just in case there's one of those little bits, you know what I mean, where they tell you, but wait, there's more and there's something else coming and all that sort of stuff. Uh, I'm annoying like that, well, that's this part of this story, verse 70. Jesus replied to them, didn't I choose you, the twelve? Yet one of you is the devil. He was referring to Judas because he was going to betray him. Why is this here? After this great moment of faith from Peter, why does Jesus want to put a dampener on it? Can't Jesus just say, that's great, Peter, you've recognised who I am, let's be positive. But he doesn't, he, he, he's negative. Why? I think it's because Jesus just wants to remind Peter and the others here not to be proud of their faith. 
to remind them that it's not that they are smarter than the people who've walked away, to remind them that it's not that they are naturally more spiritual than the people who've walked away or naturally more enlightened. It's that Jesus chose them. That's why they've come to believe in him, because he chose them and because God's spirit is at work in them. And then even amongst them, just in case they're getting proud, even amongst the 12, there is one whose faith will prove not to be genuine. One is actually doing the devil's work. And it just reminds us that even faith is not something we contribute. Sometimes I talk to Christians, like they go, yeah, yeah, I'm not saved by works, saved by faith. But then it's like they're proud of their faith. No. All faith is, is saying, where else have I got to go? I trust in Jesus. And even that is a gift from God. As we finish, I think one of the reasons we have this moment recorded for us in Scripture is to prepare us for the reality that it will be hard to keep following Jesus. Don't be under false pretenses. It will be hard to live a life trusting in Jesus and it's only going to get harder, frankly. And it's to prepare us for the reality that sometimes people we know and love even people sitting here with us, sometimes people we know and love will walk away from Jesus and they will say, I would rather have the world. I'd rather have the things of this world than follow your Jesus. And Jesus wants us to know that being a true believer will mean following him even when his word is hard. Not just hard to understand but hard to accept. It's interesting as we come to this tough question series over the next couple of weeks, sometimes we can ask questions sort of like we're putting God on trial and we sort of expect God shouldn't make it hard for me to accept his word. You know, we have this attitude like that all too often as Christians, but no, Jesus is preparing us here for the fact that often accepting my words will mean accepting things that grate against you that great against the world and great against your reason and great against everything. Being a true believer will mean following him faithfully even when his word is hard to accept. And being a true believer will mean following him faithfully even when other people don't. Following him faithfully even when sometimes people we thought were with us are against us. And the reality is sometimes we will be tempted to walk away. If you have never once, you know, I'm not encouraging you to go home tonight and have this moment, but if you have never once in your life thought, is it worth it? Why am I following Jesus? I praise God for you. But for everyone else, you will have moments where you are tempted to walk away. But if you are, if you are ever tempted to walk away, this passage says two wonderful things to you. It says, firstly, remember, you do not stand firm by your own strength. That's the first thing. God is at work in you by His Spirit. So even if you are struggling, pray and ask God to help you. Because if you are His, God won't let you go. But secondly, it just reminds you that whatever your struggles, in the end, what can possibly compare to knowing Jesus? In my moments of doubt, that's the question I ask. Where else could I possibly go? when Jesus alone has the words of eternal life. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you 
for the wonderful news of your gospel that you offer us eternal life freely by believing in Jesus. But Father, we pray for those people known to us and every one of us here knows people who at some point seem to follow Jesus but have now walked away and do not call him their Lord and Saviour. And we ask that somehow, whether through our efforts or others, they might hear the word of the gospel again and repent and believe. And for ourselves, Father, when we are tempted to doubt, help us to remember that you are in control, that you are sovereign, but also help us to remember that nothing can compare to the wonderful, life-giving words of Jesus. And so it's in his name that we pray. Amen.